0: Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Hebrews. We'll continue in our study of this wonderful letter, which is uh, the author describes as a short exhortation. I don't know how short it is, but it is a wonderful exhortation. And uh, this morning, let me read from Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14. Let's give attention to God's Word this morning. Now, even the first was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it was the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of re- reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that come, that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. That sends a reading of God's word. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Oh. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word that is before us this morning. And it's so rich and full. And we, we need your Holy Spirit, not only to understand it, but God to receive it, to accept it, and, and to live and it's true would you do this for us this morning we pray in your name amen well kids I, I have a question for you this morning do you know what a conscience is what it means when if I talk about your conscience well let me explain it by car- uh, comparing it to something that you may understand have you ever fallen down and skinned your knee? I'm, I'm sure probably every person, if not most every person in this room, even adults did that when, when they were little. And and when you skin your knee, it hurts, right? I mean, it hurts a lot. Um, and the reason it is is because you have nerves that run through your body. And when you skin your knee, those, those nerves send that signal to your brain to tell it that something's wrong and, and to feel pain and, And then of course how to to take care of that well your conscience is sort of like the nervous system only for the soul not for the body your conscience tells you when something is wrong i guess it could also tell you when something is good as well but uh, uh your conscience tells you when something is is wrong and so if you uh kids i would hope this would never happen but Let's just say for the sake of illustration that you saw some money on your parents dresser and so you took that money and after you took that money and you left your parents room uh all of a sudden you feel really bad you realize that the thing you did was wrong and that is your conscience telling you that what you did was wrong and we've all experienced with our conscience either assuring us or, or condemning us our, our our conscience doesn't always condemn us sometimes it does assure us i mean think if you if you were accused of doing something but you didn't really do it you know not only does your mind your intellect tell you hey i didn't do that but your conscience almost gets indignant it says i i didn't do that and it sort of raises its voice but When you do do something wrong, it is your conscience that's talking to you. It's that voice inside of us that reminds us that there is a moral standard and that we will be held accountable to that moral standard. That when we do things that are wrong, it reminds us that we have actually done something wrong. It sort of reminds me of a a comic strip that I heard about where a psychologist who was talking to his patient says, Well, Mr. Figby? I think I can explain your feelings of guilt. It's because you're guilty. And that's where we are. You know, we are guilty before God. Now, I understand that our conscience can be suppressed. Romans 1 talks about that. Where where those uh, that do not follow the Lord, even though there is that moral law, they seek to suppress that, that truth. But what does a guilty conscience do? And I want to just share a few things from a man by the name of Christopher Ash in his book, Discovering the Joy of a Clear Conscience. He said, one of the things that a conscience does is it, it never forgets. It never forgets. If I ask you, what is your most shameful secret? What is the thing that weighs on your conscience the most? You'd be able to tell me. And most likely, you would be able to tell me in great detail. And and even if it happened decades ago, you could tell me why? Because our conscience never forgets. Even if you want to forget, even if no one else knows about it, your conscience reminds you. And and, and also we see that our our a guilty conscience wants to hide in shame. I mean we see that with Adam and Eve, do we not, in, in the garden, that they sinned against God. They were guilty before him. And so what did they do? They hid from God. God comes and he asks them why they're hiding and Adam says, well I was naked and afraid so I hid. And God asks this question he says, who told you that you were naked? And of course it was their conscience that told him. Hide! And there is in all of us sort of that, that, seer, that inner fear that says, you know, if people really knew us, if they knew what I was really like if they knew what I had done, or maybe even what I'm currently doing, they, there would be shame, there would, they would reject me, there would be condemnation. And so sometimes we sort of feel like we can't allow other people to know who we really are. We can't expose that. And that's what a guilty conscience does. But also living with a guilty conscience makes us sometimes angry and restless, maybe even sometimes bitter. You know, Cain killed his brother Abel, right, kids? You remember talking about that in Sunday school? But God said that part of Cain's judgment would be that he would be a restless wonder for the rest of his life on this earth, always on the move, never at peace, never at rest, no shalom, to use the Hebrew word, in in his life. There was no sense in which he had dealt with his sin and he was feeling the consequences. And some of us may know exactly what that is like. You, You may not be a very restful person Peace may seem to elude you. you. You never feel rest. You're always on the move. A guilty conscience also makes us, can make us feel anxious and even afraid. Sometimes a guilty conscience can be so overwhelming that even a person may consider taking their life. I mean, think about Judas who killed himself because his conscience condemned him for what he had done against the Lord Jesus Christ in betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. And people still do that today just to try to quiet their guilty conscience. That's not the only reason people take their lives, but that could be one of the reasons. But brothers and sisters, on the flip side, a clean conscience can allow people to, to sing with joy. And, and even in the midst of difficulty, I mean, even... As they are being martyred, I think about Stephen and the peace that he seemed to have even when the religious people picked up the stones to stone him. And here he is, and he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And, you know, he's not angry with these people. A matter of fact, he prays for those people that are persecuting him because there is such peace. And can you imagine being so at peace in your conscience that you would have such peace in the face of death. I mean, because it seems like death is the thing that most people fear the most. And maybe, do you ever um, notice some Christians who seem to be more stable, more joyful, more honest, more humble, more patient in trials, and, and even rejoicing in the face of hard, painful circumstances. And do you ever wonder, how could people be like that? Well, one of the parts of that is, is that they have a clean conscience. The inner voice of of condemnation has been silenced. They don't live consistently in the presence of a condemning conscience. Now, don't get me wrong, there's plenty that those people are guilty of. There's plenty of things that they could be accused of. But they have learned to live in the presence of God's forgiveness and grace and his love they feel accepted they believe that they are loved by God they experience that love and acknowledge it in their lives not only the the love of God towards them but the love that he has put into their hearts and the love that they have towards other people and there may be some of you who are here this morning that wish that you could feel that way and you say, how do, how do I get that? How, how, how do I get such a clear conscience? And, and, and some people think, well, the way that you get a good conscience is by being good. If you get a bad conscience by doing bad things, then the way to get a good conscience or a clear conscience is by doing good things. And so people will try to turn over a new leaf, and they'll try really hard to be obedient, and they'll pray more, they'll read their Bible more, they're, they're going to be engaged in church more. They're going to serve more. They're going to get rid of some sinful patterns in their lives. And people who believe this, brothers and sisters, are very busy people. They are very active people. Now, they are very sincere. You know, they're, they're seeking to to have that clear conscience before the Lord. But it never works. And, and it cannot work. The, the conscience is just... Uh, a sub- is, uh, it's not just a subjective experience it's not just how you feel it also is a sign of objective truth and when nerves in the body tell the brain that something has happened it really did happen and, and until you take care of what objectively happened the pain is not going to go away and it's, it's the same way with the conscience when our conscience accuses us It's because we're guilty. We have done things that that are wrong. We have failed morally. We have sinned against the God who has made us in His image. And our conscience condemns us for our sexual immorality, for our anger, our our impatience, our our pride, in judging others by our own standards, whatever the sin is that, that we struggle with. And no matter how good we try to be, our conscience knows that we're not good enough. It's, it's like the words of the old hymn that say, the labors of my hands cannot fulfill the law's demands. That is so true. And those who think that you can, that you can do that, that you can earn your way, do so through pride and, and self-effort. They're trying to please God. But in those quiet moments of their lives when they're honest, they realize all their fear is still there all their anxiety and shame and guilt are still there. They just hope that no one sees it. And oftentimes, if you see a person who acts very self-righteous, oftentimes they're seeking to cover those things up. Well, there's only one way that we can find a clean conscience, and that is through a gift. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to these Hebrew Christians, and he wants them to experience the actual joy of, of a cleansed conscience but but he wants them to know that they will never find that in the Old Testament sacrificial system because it was never able to deal with the guilt of the conscience and so he, he talks this morning to these believers and to us as well and the first thing we see in verses 1 2 through 10 is the inadequacy of the tabernacle ritual if, if you look at the Old Testament tabernacle rituals that went on it, it was not able to accomplish the things that were needed and the writer begins by talking in verses 1 through 5 about first of all about the furnishings he just sort of walks us through what the the, the tabernacle or the, the temple looked like but what's interesting is he doesn't really talk about the entirety of the temple he only focuses on the two inner rooms on the holy place and And the most holy place. Or, or kids, maybe you've heard it called the Holy of Holies. Okay, he doesn't talk about the outer court where there is the bronze altar and the bronze basin. You see, his purpose centers on the tabernacle itself because he wants to compare and to contrast it with the true tabernacle that is in heaven, where Jesus entered into the very presence of God, into the most holy place. And so, we see that the tabernacle is divided into two sections. But just to give you a point of reference, uh, since our room really almost fits this, if you look at this sanctuary room, this is 20 by 40. And, and actually, these two inner rooms, the holy place and the most holy place, were 45 by 15. So if you had take five feet and scrunch us in five feet, and take those five feet and add it that way, that's the size of the holy place and the most holy place. Before the Lord, and he he talks about the furniture that's in the holy place. He says when you walk into the holy place, on the left hand side in the holy place, as the priest entered, there would have been the lampstand, which is a solid golden lampstand with seven branches filled with pure olive oil, uh, and of course there's no windows in this place, so this is all the light that is in there as you go in, and then on the right hand side was the table of showbread. A, a, A table that had 12 loaves of of sacred bread. And then farther in to the holy place, uh, in the center, just before the veil, because there was this big curtain, this big veil, between the holy place and the most holy place, there was the altar of incense. And, And we see not only that, but then he goes on to talk about the holy of holies. And he says, inside the holy of holies, or the Ark of the Covenant. Now he also mentions that the altar of incense is is in the uh, interplace. place, and I, I think that it's not that the author didn't know his layout of the temple, you know, but I think he's thinking theologically that that altar of incense is is so tied with the Holy of Holies, even though it's physically in the holy place, it really is part of the ministry also of of the Ark in the holy of holies but anyway as you walk into the holy of holies you have the ark of the covenant which it says here in our text it contained a, a golden jar of manna aaron's rod that had budded in the stone tablets of the ten commandments and the ark of the covenant was like a box without a lid but there was a lid on it and that was called the mercy seat or in the greek the place of propitiation And it was overshadowed by two cherubim of glory, as as the writer of Hebrews said. And he calls it that because it was there that the glory of God's presence was manifested before the people. Now, what's interesting is, is the author, he mentions all this and he says, I don't have time to explain this. Because that's not really his focus. Um, The author doesn't explain the symbolic meaning of any of these things. But he hurries on to his point that these things were temporary and they looked ahead to Christ. And really what he focuses on is the second part, and that's the ministry of the priest. And if you look at verse 6, you'll you'll see where he talks about that. And he summarizes the common activities of the priest. And the priest would go into the holy place both in the morning and in the evening to minister before the Lord. And if you remember the story of of John the Baptist and his father was Zechariah, he was a priest. Not the high priest that went into the holy of holies, but a priest, and the lot, if you remember, was cast to him. So, in other words, there were many priest kids, but not all of them got to minister before the Lord in the holy place. But he, the lot, was cast to him, and so he was actually able to go in and and to minister before the Lord. And so, uh, they went into the holy place and they would trim the they would trim the lamps, and they would put fresh incense on the altar. And once a week they would replace the bread that was on the the table of show bread and then we see in in uh, verse 7 it focuses on the holy of holies and in that only the high priest could go in once a year on the day of atonement as we've seen in leviticus 16 and and he would first go in there and he would offer a, a bowl for his own sins, actually he did that outside in the courtyard, and then he would carry that blood in, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat, and then the high priest would go back out into the outer courts and there would be two goats and he would offer one goat as the sacrifice take that blood, go back into the holy place, into the holy of holies and he would sprinkle that for the sins of the people and then he would come back out and he would put his hand on the head of the other goat And he would confess the sins of the people. And then he would send that goat out to the wilderness. Well, the annual Day of Atonement uh, would have underscored a number of things for the Jewish people. First of all, it portrayed the absolute holiness of God and how our sin separates us from entering His presence. You know, I mean, think about that. You know, if if you think about for a Jew to go to the temple... Wasn't a warm, fuzzy place. I think about so much worship that goes on in churches today. And they're like, come, hang out with us. Let's have a good time. Let's come before God. And that wasn't at all the tone that was in the the tabernacle or the temple. It portrayed the absolute holiness of God. But not only His holiness, but also showed the sin and the defilement of all the people. Even the priests. Um, had to offer sacrifices as well. And it showed that no one dared enter God's holy presence without the blood of an acceptable sacrifice. And it showed that the people must approach God through a proper mediator that is through the high priest. And it showed that if the proper sacrifices was offered, then God would be propitiated or he would be satisfied so that he would not judge their sins. And, and as you look at this, it's a beautiful picture of how we come to God. But as glorious as this ritual was, it was really inadequate. And that's what the author wants his hearers to hear. It was inadequate for two reasons. First of all, the old system provided limited access to God. The people could not come in to the holy place and then come into the holy of holies. Uh, even the priests themselves, as I said, only certain priests could come into the holy place. And as the priests did their service, even in the holy place, they, they could look at that curtain and they could think God's presence is on the other side of that. Or that is where he comes when the cloud, the kind of glory, descends upon the tabernacle. Just on the other side of that curtain. But that curtain was a necessary barrier to keep them from seeing or to entering the holiest of places. And even the, the high priest, when he would go into the holy of holies, once a year did so uh, with a sense that he had to do the ritual perfectly or it might cost him his life. And and so we read in verse eight uh, that the old covenant, access to God, is not yet opened. It says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Now, that word section could mean tabernacle as well. And so he could, when he says the first section, he could be referring to the holy place, that first room. While that's still there, we don't have access to God. You know, until that curtain is torn and removed, we can't come into God's holy presence. And we know, though, that Jesus Christ did that on the cross. When he died and he paid for our sins, what happened to the curtain in the temple, kids? was ripped. And it was ripped from the top down, not from the bottom up. So God opened access for his people. But he also could be referring to the first tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, and saying now that Jesus has died, he has paid, he has shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins and he has now entered into the heavenly tabernacle. We now have access with him. But, but he's saying that in the old system, There was not access to God. He says also the old system could not cleanse the conscience. Look at verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshippers. And then he gives uh, two reasons for this statement in verse 10. He said first because they were external regulations for the body. The, The implication in the text is that it could not deal adequately with the conscience. It only deals with the externals. Secondly, he says they were temporary. He says it was imposed until a time of reformation, which refers to the time of Christ when he comes. So the fact that the sacrifices had to be repeated annually showed that the incomplete nature of, of the forgiveness. And it was really just putting off the guilt uh, for another year. So, the author is really trying to point to these Old Testament Hebrew Christians, or or to these Hebrew Christians, he's arguing that the Old Testament sacrificial system was not God's complete and final provision for the guilt of our sins. But then he shows us, secondly, that Christ's blood provides complete access to God in verses 11 through 14. Look at verse 11. Christ's blood provides complete access to God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy place not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption you see since jesus our high priest is in heaven he is in a sense sort of lays the trail for us Uh, by His own perfect merit and the blood that He has accomplished that access into the true holy place. Now, think about that, brothers and sisters. Think about the access that we have before God today. When you came in to this worship service, did you really think about the difference between the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers? That when we come this morning and we lift up our prayers before the Lord, we actually are coming before the throne of grace. That when we stand and we sing our praises to God, we are standing in His presence to worship Him through Jesus Christ. We have full access to Him. Matter of fact, let me read from Hebrews chapter 10. Just look the chapter over. Verses 19 through 22 where we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You know, we may not feel like we are in the presence of God. We may not uh, feel like we have that, uh, that we could draw near to God, that we could come into His presence. But he says in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, Jesus has done what the sacrifices of the old covenant could not do. And His blood... He secured that eternal covenant or excuse me eternal redemption kids of course redemption is making a payment to set someone else free from something okay in this case Christ set us free from sin now sin is still present in our lives we still wrestle with that but the guilt of our sin is gone okay the guilt of our sin is gone and, uh, and we can rejoice in that. That we no longer are guilty for our sin. And even the power of sin to rule over us is gone. We can now obey Christ. And so he didn't merely cover over our sins, but he took it upon himself on his death on the cross. As we read in verse 13, For at the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, in other words, the sacrifices that were given, even the sacrifice of the red heifer, you can read more about that in Numbers 19, but basically they took the ashes of this red heifer, mixed it with water, and then they would use that for the purification of people who had become unclean by touching a dead body. And, and the author really argues from the lesser to the greater. He said, if these rituals would cleanse the flesh... Then he says in verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? Now think about the most terrible thing that you have ever done. That dark secret that that haunts you at night. The great truth that if people really knew, they would condemn you for it. Probably scorn you and, and shame you. But God knows that secret. And He sees that sin. And He has placed it upon His own Son so that you will not be condemned. And that's what Paul makes uh, reference to in Colossians chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14. He said, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all our sins, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You see, there were legal demands against us because of our sin, but that record has been removed. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then he said just a couple verses later in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. You know, he was talking about festivals and things like that. Let no one pass judgment on you. But the reality is, is that when we are in Christ, we have a clear conscience. And we cannot condemn ourselves. Others cannot condemn us. Satan cannot condemn us. He tries. But Christ's blood possesses power to cleanse us and the great condemnation of our conscience. His death preaches to us that the death has been paid for all of our sin. And an and infinite atonement has been made to relieve us of the burden of such great guilt. And there, there's no greater burden that we can have in this world than the guilt of our sin. And, and if you don't believe me, then just think, if you reflect on your sin you will understand what I mean. If you you come to recognize how your words have torn the hearts of others, just like a knife might cut through someone's flesh, our words sometimes cut through the soul of other people as we use them so harshly. If you think for just a moment how your neglect of Christian duty and your pursuit of selfish gain have caused sorrow for those around you, Or if you think of the things that you've done or said that have caused others to to even maybe resent you. Maybe you've just been a jerk and people wish that they have never met you. I hope that's not the case, but that might be the case. Or if you take stock of God's holy law and your incessant violation of it. If we do those things, then your conscience will speak against you about what you really are and what you really deserve. And when you realize these things, then you will crave a cleansing such as Christ alone can give. And brothers and sisters, He can give it. He can. Where the old system provided only limited access and limited efficiency, efficacy, excuse me, Christ provides complete access and efficacy on the forgiveness of our sins. And we read at the end of verse 19, just a, a third point very briefly, He does so So that we might serve the living God. That that he purifies us so that we might serve the living God. And the reason I want to mention this is that some Christians serve God in an attempt to pacify a guilty conscience. That they erroneously think that if I could just do enough for God, then maybe he will forgive me. Now, oftentimes we don't come right out and say this, but oftentimes that's maybe the actions of, of our lives. We find ourselves so busy because we want to be pleasing in God's sight. But that's wrong motives. Others mistakenly think that God forgives them so that they can feel good. Their their focus is on themselves and not God. But that's with wrong motives too. But God has forgiven us by His grace, through His precious blood of His Son, so that now that we can be set free... And we could praise God and say, Oh Lord, I want to serve you. I thank you so much for what you have done. And so there is a joy in our service to the Lord because it is in response to His wonderful grace. Do you know that freedom this morning? Do you live in that freedom? Not just do you know it intellectually. Do you experience that freedom in your life? That freedom from a guilty conscience? resting not in what you have done, but in what... Jesus, your high priest, has done through His eternal blood, or through His blood, eternally to redeem you. You see, through Christ, we have full access to God and a clear conscience from all of our guilt and our sin. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Have you ever known someone who has lost a limb? Maybe an arm or a leg. I knew a, a man that he actually... I was in Vietnam and he had lost both of his legs and and was in a wheelchair and and even though the limb is missing that person sometimes feels phantom pain in in that limb even though it's not there so they're like my legs are hurting but their legs aren't there and and it's a very real thing with with real pain and and it, and from what I understand I'm no expert on that's the doctor but uh, it, it's, it requires that person to take medication because the problem's not in the limb, but it's in the brain. Well, in the same way, in the lives of Christian brothers and sisters, there can be phantom fear. There can be phantom shame in our lives. There can be phantom guilt in our lives. But there's a medication that we can take for it. But we have to take it. Do you understand that it is phantom guilt when you feel guilty for a sin in the past? It's already been forgiven and forgotten by God. There's actually no guilt that remains there. There's no offense towards God because it has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And for us to live in that guilt and in that shame is to, to, to say, not, not really maybe even realizing this, that you know Jesus' sacrifice was no different than the sacrifice of the animals in the Old Testament. It accomplished nothing. But that's not true. Christ has eternally redeemed us. That guilt is gone. That shame is gone. Brothers and sisters, The guilt is actually gone. The shame is phantom. But you have to take the medicine. And the medicine is to continually receive by faith what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross and shedding his blood. You have to receive that truth and let it mold and shape your life. And you know that, that you're beginning to do this when you not only say that you feel like a failure, but when you say, I am a failure. When you say, I am a moral failure. There are flaws in my character. I, I, I love things that I should hate. I desire things that that I ought to loathe. I do and I say and I think things that are completely contrary to the will of God. But, but, Jesus Christ has secured my redemption. Jesus has pardoned my guilt. He's not only pardoned my guilt, He has cleansed my sin. And no matter what, My conscience may say to me, I can answer my conscience with the gospel truth. It is not believing these things just intellectually, but it is receiving them by faith. It is admitting that you may feel one way about yourself, but really you need to stand on the greater promises of what Christ has done for you. Are you doing that this morning, brothers and sisters? Do you wake up each morning secure that Jesus is your high priest? That He has given you access to God through a clear conscience that He's provided for you through His blood? Do you believe that Jesus' blood actually makes atonement for your sin? And does your life reflect that you believe that? I want you to bow your heads this morning. If you would, would me. Please bow your heads. And, and you may be here today, you may be watching on the internet, and and you may be very aware right now of your sin. And and you've known that it's always there. You've suppressed it. But today, the Holy Spirit has brought it to light. But He's also shown you something else. That you can't deal with that guilt. You can't clear your conscience. The only way that can be done is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if that's where you are, I want to encourage you to come to Christ and to confess that sin to God. If He already knows it, confess it to Him and ask for His forgiveness. And He will not only cleanse you of that sin, but He will give you a life to serve Him. No longer serving yourself. No longer doing what you want to do, but serving Him. And if that's where you're at, I just ask you to pray to God and to tell Him these things. And that if you do that, then I want you to to go to our website and go to our contact page and send me a note or call me or email me or something. Let me know that you did that. But it may be that you may be here this morning and you may be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, you have grown up in church and you know that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. As a matter of fact, you've heard it so many times, it just almost seems like ho-hum. But that reality has not made itself into your heart, into your life to walk in that forgiveness and to understand truly how free you are in Jesus Christ. And know that He wants you to come to Him and to trust Him. Let's just take a moment of silence this morning as we consider these things. And I just ask you to pray to God and and to respond to him appropriately. this morning and that you have done immeasurably more than than what we read in the Old Testament it's, it's just a shadow but you have given us the reality and I pray that we would walk in that reality and, and understanding God that you're not done with us and you're continuing to work in us and, and through your people and I pray God that uh, you would humble us for we are proud where we have been self-sufficient and thinking that we're so much better than other people. Uh, Lord, I pray instead that you would help us to understand that without you, we are no different than anybody else. But, But may we reflect upon the freedom that you've given us through your blood. And may you lead us to a heart of worship to you and a life of service to you. Of joy God not serving you the way we want to serve you how we want to serve you and the time that we want to serve you but serving you willingly giving up our desires and our wishes to do that which would be pleasing to you and Lord I pray that if there be any here today who do not know you who are, who's hearing this that they might give their life to you Lord that you might reveal yourself to them and that you might wash them clean in the blood of Jesus Christ making them a new creature in You. It's in Your name that we pray these things. Amen.